So it seems like um, with a lot of the sermons I've been doing recently, I've started out with confession, um, acknowledging some of my faults and some of my difficulties, and that may go on for a while because I have lots of faults and I have lots of difficulties, so there's probably like a whole lifetime worth of sermons just as I, I deal with my own issues. Um, but I assume that if I deal with some of these things and have problems with some of these things, that, that others do as well. So I'm going to start out this sermon again in confession, again acknowledging something that I have a problem with. And this morning I want to talk about forgiveness. And I want to acknowledge that I have difficulty in believing that I am forgiven. I mean, really believing that I'm forgiven. I have a hard time grasping that God has forgiven me in a way that there aren't any strings attached that there aren't any conditions attached to it, that there's no record of the wrongs that I've committed in the past. And I wonder why that is. I wonder why it's so difficult for me to really grasp, to really catch hold of the notion, the idea, the fact that God has forgiven, has really forgiven me. And I think maybe one of the reasons why I have that problem is that I myself have a problem in forgiving. You see, I, I have a tendency to project kind of my own characteristics, my, my own way of doing things onto God. And so if I have a problem forgiving others, it's easy for me to start believing that God too would have a problem forgiving. Especially the kind of forgiving that comes with no strings attached, that comes with no conditions, that comes with no record of wrongs. See, I have a hard time believing that God has really forgiven me. Maybe you too struggle with forgiveness. Maybe you too struggle with believing that your sins have been and your sins continue to be really forgiven by God. And maybe you too struggle with forgiving. Maybe you too struggle with really forgiving others. Maybe you struggle like I do with forgiving others without any strings attached. Maybe you struggle with forgiving people without conditions attached. Maybe you struggle with forgiving people without keeping a record of their wrongs so that you can use those wrongs against them at some future date. Maybe you share that with me. So my intention this morning is to spend some time exploring forgiveness. Spend some time exploring how God forgives. Spend some time exploring how we tend to forgive. And then exploring how God calls us to forgive our brothers and sisters. And I want to start that process by introducing and defining two different words. And the first word that I want to introduce and define is the word pardon. We can bring that up on the screen, the definition for pardon. See, pardon is a decision that allows a person who has been convicted of a crime to be released and absolved of that conviction as if it never occurred. As if it never occurred. Pardon means that you're released and absolved as if it never happened, without conditions, without strings attached, with no record of the crime or conviction having ever occurred. It's been released It's been absolved. And this is how God forgives. See, God pardons. God releases. God absolves. 
And it's not because of anything that we have done. It's not because we are deserving of a pardon. It's not because we have earned a pardon. But God pardons because He loves us. See, God's pardons are a result of a father's love for his children. God rescued. And God continues to rescue his children from the prison of sin by pardoning, by releasing, by absolving us of our guilt. You see, our story isn't the story of the innocent being set free. It's not a story of the falsely accused being exonerated. And it's not the story of some legal travesty being discovered in the court system somehow and being rectified. That's not our story. Our story is a different story, and our story is even more remarkable than any of those kind of stories that we hear about periodically. See, our story is the story of Jesus. Jesus, the entirely and completely innocent one. Our story is the story of Jesus accepting and paying our penalty so that we, the guilty ones, could be pardoned by our Father, could be pardoned by the completely righteous and just one. See, we need to all understand that Jesus' sacrifice was a redeeming sacrifice. We need to all understand that Jesus' sacrifice was an atoning sacrifice. It was a sanctifying sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice bought us. It washed us. It reconciled us. It purified us. It justified us. It redeemed us. Jesus' sacrifice released and absolved us from our sins. See, we, Christians... Children of God, sons and daughter of God, have been pardoned. And we've been pardoned for one reason and one reason alone. That's because of God's great love for us. I want us to all understand that we must accept. And we must embrace. And we must celebrate the fact that God practices pardon forgiveness. God's forgiveness is restoration forgiveness. God's forgiveness restores his sons and daughters to their place in his family. God's forgiveness restores you and me to our place in his family. No strings attached. No record of our sins kept. But God gives us unconditional restoration to his family. Well, the second word that I want to introduce and define is the word parole. Parole. It's a word that we're probably fairly familiar with. Parole is the conditional release of a person from prison prior to the end of the maximum sentence imposed. Parole is release, but it's conditional release. It's release with strings attached. It's a release with a record of the wrongs committed kept in place. It's released with the ever-present reality that a return to prison is just but one small misstep away. Why this word is important to me and why it may be important to you is because I'm afraid that too often with my brothers and sisters, I practice pardon forgiveness. Excuse me, I practice parole forgiveness instead of pardon forgiveness. 
parole forgiveness. You know what that looks like? You've probably all experienced on one end of it or the other. See, parole forgiveness says this. It says, I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you, but don't expect things to be the way that they were before. Parole forgiveness says, I'll forgive you, but you better not let it ever happen again. Parole forgiveness says, I'll forgive you, but you better believe I'm going to be watching you. You better believe I'm going to be keeping my eye on you. And you better not let that happen again. See, parole forgiveness doesn't restore brothers and sisters back to their place in the family. Parole forgiveness divides us rather than unites us. See, when I practice parole forgiveness, I place you in the category of the offender. And I put myself in the category of a parole officer. And if you don't abide by the conditions of parole that I've determined, then I'm going to send you back to prison the first time that you mess up. And that kind of behavior in God's family is just wrong. That cannot be practiced in God's family. Because in God's family, we need to understand that we're all pardoned sinners. See, in God's family, there aren't divisions between the guilty and the innocent. There aren't divisions between offenders and parole officers because, and these will be familiar words, all of us have sinned and fallen short. There aren't divisions because Christ died for all of us. There aren't divisions because God's mercy is for all of us. In God's family, all of us have been released And all of us have been absolved of our sins. So that brings us to our key point this morning. And the key point is this. Pardoned sinners must, pardoned sinners must stand ready to pardon sinners. See, I want each of us here this morning to leave with the understanding and with the assurance that we are all sinners who have been graciously pardoned by our God. I want us to leave with the understanding and the conviction that God, the one who pardons, is calling each of us to imitate him by granting pardon forgiveness to our brothers and sisters in his family. Now, before we go any further, I need to make a couple of things very clear. When we're talking about the necessity of pardon forgiveness, we need to understand these two things. First, we need to understand that this morning we're talking about church business. We're talking about family business. We're talking about extending pardon to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the second thing we need to understand is that we're talking about sins that have been acknowledged. We're talking about forgiving sins that have been confessed. We're talking about forgiving sins that the person is wanting to turn away from and has asked for forgiveness. We're talking about pardoning people who have repented and asked for forgiveness. And to help understand the importance of we, the pardoned, standing ready to pardon others, let's consider together a story that Jesus told that we find in Matthew chapter 18. And it begins in verse 21. The story begins when Peter approaches Jesus and he asks this. He says, Lord, 
How many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And then Jesus tells a story. He tells a parable about forgiveness in God's kingdom. Jesus tells a story about a king, a king who represents God. And this king decides that he's going to settle the accounts. He's going to deal with all of the debts that are owed him. And he's going to deal with all of the debtors who owe him. And the first one that he calls to him is a man who owes him so much money that there's really no way that he could ever repay it all. And the king brings that man before him. And he looks at him and he pronounces a just verdict. And the just verdict is a harsh verdict. But the king pronounces justice, and justice is this. The king says, I'm going to sell you, I'm going to sell your wife, I'm going to sell your children, and I'm going to sell everything you own, and I'm going to use those proceeds to retire the debt that you owe me. The man reacts to that as we might react to it. He falls to his knees, and he begs for mercy. He says, give me more time, have patience on me. And I will pay you back everything. And the king looks at him in mercy and in compassion and in pity. And he forgives the debt. Wipes it away. Blots it out and sends him away. And then the story continues. As the man is walking outside, he sees another servant of the king. And that servant owes him money. A small amount of money, not a great sum, just a little bit. And the servant goes over to his fellow servant who owes him a little bit of money, and he grabs him, and he starts to choke him, and he says, pay me back every dime of what you owe me. The man doesn't have the money, and he reacts as we might react. He falls to his knees. He asks for mercy. He says, please be patient with me, and I'll pay you back everything that I owe you. And the man does not respond in mercy. The man responds harshly, and he sends the man to prison where he's going to be kept until he's able to pay back everything that he owes. Well, the king finds out about this action. He finds out about this encounter between his two servants. And as we might expect, he's angry. He's confused. So the king calls back the first servant. And he says this to him. He says, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in his anger and disappointment, the king turned the servant over to the jailers for punishment until the debt could be satisfied. And then Jesus concludes the story with these words. Jesus says this. He says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Forgiveness from the heart is pardon forgiveness. I want to read a few more verses to reinforce the importance of pardon forgiveness. First, we'll turn to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. This is when Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And one thing that he tells them to pray is this. He says, when you pray, pray this. Forgive us our debts 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then a couple of verses later, he says this to his disciples. He says, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Then we can turn to Mark chapter 11 and verse 25. Again, this is Jesus speaking. And Jesus says this, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Then if we turn over to Luke, Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Again, this is Jesus speaking. And Jesus says this, he says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Still in Luke, chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. Jesus, speaking again, says this. He says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Paul wrote this in his book, his letter in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 32. Ephesians 4, 32, Paul wrote this. He said, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, Just as in Christ, God forgave you. And finally, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So a lot of words about forgiveness. A lot of words from Jesus Christ about forgiveness. So we should ask the question, what does this have to do with us? How does this apply to us? Well, I think there are a number of very important implications for you and me in these verses. And I want to mention just five implications of God's words that we just read. First implication is I I think that we all have to start by acknowledging the fact and accepting the fact that God's forgiveness is unconditional. We all need to grasp the fact that we have been pardoned, not paroled. I don't know what your favorite imagery is about forgiveness. If it's broken chains, or maybe it's cell doors being thrown open. Maybe it's the forgiven debt that we just talked about. Maybe it's scarlet sins being washed white as snow. But whatever imagery you want to grasp hold of, we need to understand that the beginning and ending point of any discussion about forgiveness is God's forgiveness. God's pardon forgiveness. See, it's only when we grasp the enormity 
of what God has done for us that we can begin to understand the importance of our forgiveness of our brothers and sisters. Secondly, we must understand that the reason we are called to forgive others is rooted in God's forgiveness of us. We need to realize that we forgive because God forgave us. We forgive because we have been forgiven. See, our forgiveness of others is a loving response to God's loving action on our, our behalf. We forgive because our loving Father forgave us. And third, we must realize that we forgive in order to be forgiven. And this is a hard one for me to, to grasp. See, our forgiveness is forever linked to our forgiving actions. Remember these words that we read. Forgive so that your Father in heaven may forgive you. And we read this. Forgive and you will be forgiven. See, when God forgives, He forgives unconditionally. But before He forgives, there can be a condition. See, God's forgiveness is conditional on our forgiving behavior and our forgiving forgiving actions towards our brothers and sisters. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. The fourth implication we need to grasp is that we are to forgive in the way we have been forgiven. We are to forgive in the way we have been forgiven. Our forgiveness is to look just like God's forgiveness of us. And I'll acknowledge that's a very high standard. But that's not an impossible standard, or God would have not asked us to do it. See, we're asked to not selfishly withhold from others what has been generously given to us by our loving God. We read, forgive as the Lord forgave you. We read, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. We read, if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. See, we are to practice pardon forgiveness with our brothers and sisters, and we are to practice pardon forgiveness with our brothers and sisters repeatedly. The fifth and final implication we need to grasp is that we are called to forgive in the way that we want to be forgiven. See, our forgiving actions towards our brothers and sisters are forward-looking. See, how we will be treated by God is a reflection of how we treat other people. We read this, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And in the parable We read this after the unmerciful servant uh, sent the man to prison. Jesus said, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. We need to understand that we forgive to be forgiven. And that to refuse to forgive means that forgiveness will be held, be withheld. That seems harsh. That seems difficult. But it seems right. 
that God expects us to forgive our brothers and sisters. And he promises that when we do that, he stands ready to forgive us of our transgressions. So what do we do with this? Now what? What can each of us do to right now access God's pardon, access his pardon and practice pardon forgiveness with our brothers and sisters? Just a few things that I want to mention. The first thing I want to mention that we all need to do is that we need to clear the record, if you will. Pardon has been offered. Pardon is available. So why don't we access it? Why don't we take the steps that we need to take in order to clear our record, to have all of our transgressions washed away, blotted out, done away with, with no strings attached? How do we do that? Well, the beginning point is confession. The beginning point is acknowledgement. The beginning point is being able to say to God and to other people, I have messed up. I have sinned. I am a sinner. And I stand in need of forgiveness. The beginning point is acknowledging our need for God's pardon, forgiveness. The next point is we must repent. We must turn away. We must move away from that sinful behavior. We must confess that we stand in need of God's forgiveness. And we must take steps to move away from our sinful behavior. The third step, which many of us have done and some of us have not, is you need to be baptized. If you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. See, in, in baptism... We join in. We become a part of. We celebrate Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And it's that death, burial, and resurrection that makes our pardon possible. It's God's means of pardoning us is by Jesus having paid the debts that we owed. We must confess, we must acknowledge, we must repent, we must turn away, and we must be baptized. How about those of us who have confessed and repented and been baptized? But we find ourselves in a place where we don't want to be. We find ourselves having secret sin. We find ourselves living a lifestyle that we know is not correct. We find ourselves doing things that we know are not God-honoring and God-pleasing. We find ourselves treating our brothers and sisters in ways that are sinful. How about us? What do we do? Surprisingly enough, the beginning point is the same. It's confession. It's acknowledgement that we're sinners. It's a confession that we have messed up, that we have sinned, that we have hurt our brothers and sisters. It's a confession that we're living in a way that we shouldn't be living. It's confessing to God and to our brothers and sisters that we have secret sin and we have a secret life that does not honor our God. And that's a difficult thing to do. But that's the beginning point. The next thing that we must do is we must repent. We must turn away. We must move away from that lifestyle. We must quit engaging in those kind of behaviors. We must quit doing the things that are harming our brothers and sisters. We must quit doing the things that dishonor our God. 
And then we need to ask. Or maybe we need to beg for forgiveness. We need to act like those servants who fell before the servant who fell before the king and the servant who fell before the other servant on our knees, recognizing that we do owe a debt and asking for God's mercy and asking for God's forgiveness. But it doesn't end with God. If our sin is against our brothers and sisters, we must ask for their forgiveness. We must beg their forgiveness. If we have injured our brothers and sisters through our sin, then we must go to them. We must ask them to forgive us. Easy? No. Necessary? I maintain yes. But then what happens? What happens when you go to someone and you ask them for forgiveness? When you've confessed, when you've repented, when you've begged for forgiveness, what happens then? What's the burden that God has placed on the person who is in a position to forgive? Well, I maintain that the burden is on us to practice active forgiveness. You see, I think pardon forgiveness isn't just intellectual forgiveness. It isn't just verbal forgiveness. It isn't just saying, oh, I forgive you. It requires action on our part. It requires action to release. It requires action to restore. It requires action to repair. It requires action to heal. You might turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Just a couple of verses. We don't know a whole lot about the background, but we know a few things. See, there's a person in the church in Corinth who has been rebuked, who's been punished, who's been disciplined by the church for sinful behavior in his life. Some people think it's the same person who we read about in 1 Corinthians who was sleeping with his stepmother. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, But we do know that this is a person who has sinned, who has been punished, and is ready to turn back to God. He's now seeking forgiveness from the church. And listen to what Paul says about this man to the church. He says, The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. See, Paul teaches us some very important principles for us as we strive to actively pardon our brothers and sisters. First, he teaches us that pardon forgiveness comforts. Pardon forgiveness Comforts. It seeks to help heal. It soothes. It consoles. And we are all in a position to provide comfort to our brothers and sisters because we can all truly empathize with where they are. Because when we comfort our brother and sister who are repenting, who are coming back to God, it's sinner to sinner. It's pardoned to pardoned. We've all been there. We may all be there now, and we know that we'll be there in the future. So pardon forgiveness comforts. Paul also teaches us that pardon forgiveness affirms and reaffirms. Remember the words, forgive 77 times. Forgive seven times in one day. See, pardon forgiveness makes certain that the forgiven one understands that they have value. Pardon forgiveness 
make sure that the person who is repenting knows that they have meaning, that they are an important part of the body of Christ. Pardon forgiveness affirms that the forgiven one is still loved by God and affirms that they are still loved by their brothers and sisters. And pardon forgiveness also releases. Pardon forgiveness cuts the strings. Pardon forgiveness removes the conditions. Pardon forgiveness blots out the record. Pardon forgiveness keeps no record of wrongs. But pardon forgiveness allows the forgiven one the freedom that we all enjoy in Christ Jesus. And finally, we see that pardon forgiveness restores. Pardon forgiveness restores full family membership. It reinstates full rights and privileges. Pardon forgiveness invites the forgiven one back to their place at the table. And it restores them as full sons and daughters of God. And it restores them as full brothers and sisters of us. It's only then that they can grasp the reality that they're not on parole. That they have been pardoned by God. And they have been pardoned by their brothers and sisters. So my plea to you is that we all live as pardoned people. And we all live as people always ready to pardon our brothers and sisters. It's traditional for us to end our sermons with an invitation. My invitation is really fairly simple. My invitation is this. Take God up on his invitation of pardon. If you have not already done so, repent. Confess. Be baptized. Be washed. Be pardoned. Take God up on his invitation of pardon. If you have been baptized and you find yourself in a place where you don't want to be, leading a secret life of sin, harming your brothers and sisters, bringing reproach upon the name of God, God's invitation is also of pardon. He invites you to confess, to repent, and be pardoned. God's invitation is to be pardoned. But his invitation is also to pardon. There may be somebody here in this place that you need to pardon. Someone who has sinned against you, who has confessed, who has repented, who has asked for forgiveness, and you haven't really forgiven them. Maybe you're keeping them on parole. Maybe you're being their parole officer. Maybe you're watching for them to mess up just one time so you can send them right back to prison. If that's the case, God's invitation is for you to become the partner, to comfort, to affirm, to release, and restore. Please, won't you answer God's invitation? Thank you.